It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're talking with David Newsom, who is founder of the Wild Yards Project, a collaboration of storytellers and native plant professionals working together to inspire people, not just in California, but across the country, to transform their yards into native plant habitats. David himself is a self-described amateur native plant enthusiast, but he's a 30-year veteran of film and television, and he uses this skill set to spread the word about the benefits of native landscaping. Welcome to the podcast, David. It is so fantastic to be here. People may be surprised to hear this, but we actually know each other through the Burning Man community. I've been four times, and you've been how many times? Uh, let's see. I think, uh, I think I ended up going a total of eight times. Nice. And my husband's been 14 times. a boy. That's right. <laughs> and so he, he brought me into the fold and I know, so we, because of our Burning Man experience, we both are very familiar with how a harsh, desolate, barren landscape can be. Did your Burning Man experience influence the Wild Yards project at all? At all, or did it? How did it arise? Did it arise from a different inspiration altogether? Uh, well, actually, the the Burning Man experience for me was a kind of. I mean, it's a whole other conversation. But I, up until that time, I worked in commercial film and television, and I was actually an actor. And I was a I was a photographer, kind of an amateur photographer at the time. And the Burning Man experience actually did a couple things. One of the big things it did was jumpstart my own voice. Uh, I had been very locked into a way of doing things and a culture. And uh, I was trying, I was a square peg stuffing myself into a round hole creatively for a long time. And so Burning Man actually gave me a lot of, a lot of tools and it unlocked a lot of my, my creativity. And I took my photography more seriously and a bunch of experiences that came out of that. Some of them uh, dealing with entheogens. I met a, I met someone through that experience who then became, led me to a shaman that I worked with for a long time, believe it or not. Mm. And my work with entheogens, particularly ayahuasca, um, also helped rekindle. So I, I, it rekindled both my love for art and photography. My first big show that I had was actually images from the playa a long time ago now in a past <laughs> life. And, uh, and also then uh, I began to, as a kid, I was very, very into the outdoors. I was very into plants and animals. I had 15 fish tanks in my house in New Jersey. We had raccoons, we had monkeys, we had all kinds of things. And all of that kind of came back to me starting around that time. So that was the that was the little, I moved through a little portal there and that led me on the path that I am now fully on these days. And can you describe for our listeners where you live and what your garden space looks like? I like to give people a sense of place as they listen to our conversation. Sure. Um, so I live in Northeast Los Angeles in a, in a little neighborhood called Eagle Rock. We're sort of sandwiched between Glendale and Pasadena. Um, when I was, when I, I've lived here now in, I've lived in Los Angeles for 30 years and I've lived here for eight years. And I remember driving from Hollywood and going up to Pasadena and I always looked down to my right at this little dell and this little village. And I was like, what is that place? Um, and now I live there. We were at the, right at the base of a little foothill here that I'm, I'm looking at right now, although 
as everyone I'm sure knows, it's shrouded in smoke. I can't really, I can only barely see it out my office window. Yeah, we're recording um, this during the fires in Southern California. The um, it's Bobcat Fire is what's going on right the, now where you are. We are, yeah, we are experiencing an enormous amount of smoke from the Bobcat Fire. Uh, so, and so when I moved here, our backyard was a dead lot. It was literally a dead lot of uh, someone. And it's part of it, a big part of the Armenian culture and tradition is to plant pomegranate trees. And so the family that had been here before me was Armenian, and, the, and there was just a bunch of dead ornamental pomegranate trees. And someone had dug up all the dirt. So they had, they had I don't know what the idea was, but they dug it all up. So it was, it was all dead earth. You know, it, it had gotten cooked clay. So I didn't know anything about gardening back then at all. I just knew that as a kid, I grew up in New Jersey, right on the edge of secondary and tertiary forests and abandoned farmland. And so I could jump out of my development, the house that I lived in and run over, the, jump over the fence and be in the woods. And I could see deer and I could see box turtles and I could see marble salamanders in the little creek and I could find spring peepers and wood frogs and leopard frogs. And I wanted my kids to have some version of that, you know, living a hundred feet from a six lane road. Mm -hmm. uh, Colorado Boulevard is a, is a little freeway that cuts right through and I live right on it. So I started to look into the first thing I could find, which was the National Wildlife um, Federation's, their program for habitat gardens, wildlife gardens. And uh, I looked into that and I got into pollinators and things like that. And that led me to native plants, which I kind of avoided. You know, I was like, ah, oh, that's niche. That's ridiculous. You don't need to do that. But then when I began to go down that rabbit hole and learn about uh, species coevolution, coevolution between plants and animals, uh, especially, especially insects and animals, and the studies by Dr. Michael Rosenzweig and Doug Talamay, I just, I went down deep and I learned about the the, the relationship between insects and plants and the, the powerful, profound vitality of insects on your plants for all other species, that base level of protein. And then I just went, you know, and so we created a habitat garden in our backyard. I'm not a landscaper. Mm -hmm. um, There's a lot of trial and error. I killed a lot of plants. <laughs> I, still, I still kill a lot of plants. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I recorded that and that was sort of how I started the wild yards project because I come from film and photography and storytelling. And, you know, the first thing you learn about anything, if you want to sell a pitch in the room, there should be a good story attached to it. So I just started taking pictures and posting them on Instagram on my personal site. And people were like, what are you doing? Like, what is all that? And finally, the interest in that became enough that I was like, you know what, I'm going to start this thing and I'm just going to see where it goes. And here we are. That's cool. So the garden is a, is, a, is a native habitat garden. It's plants. It's not strictly local species. I'm, I'm a big supporter of more local species now because of that coevolution issue and how even when you get into cultivars, you, you lose some species along the way when you do that. Mm -hmm. But I have big toy on, which I just love. It's one of my favorite plants on earth. And so I have a big one of those. And then I have underneath that, I have a lot of black sage. And uh, I won't do the whole thing, but I have... Um, Hummingbird sage, big bed of that under that, and sages that kind of wrap around the borders of the yard. And I have a lot of different um, Ariaganum buckwheat species. Uh, I've never been successful with the actual hyperlocal species because I don't get enough sun in my yard. So I have cultivars that are more common sort of up on the coast. Ariaganum rubescens, the red buckwheat and crocatum, the sulfur buckwheat, things like that. But I probably have about, I mean, conservatively, 
80% native plants in my yard and uh, probably 40 different species of natives throughout the property. Well, you sound like a pro because the, the Latin names just roll off your tongue, which is something I've never <laughs> been good at. <laughs> um, the Latin names that roll off my tongue are the ones you just heard. Yeah, yeah. I, I, have, uh, I, I know a lot of common names, but the Latin yeah. just eludes me on a lot of these things. But that's the beauty. I mean, this is why we're having this conversation, because as an amateur native plant enthusiast, you are an inspiration to other amateur native plant enthusiasts who want to dive into this and make their yards sure. more of a habitat for our pollinators. And, and the, just, you know, the importance, you know, I, we've had Doug Tallamy on this podcast before as, as we've had other guests who are in the same kind of genre where they've been talking about the importance of native landscapes and habitats, but your angle is through storytelling. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are, what are some of your favorite stories centered around native habitats? Well, it's really funny you say that. I mean, I, I, I think, I think in general, the, the, the stories, it's, it's the story, the big story, which is in the wake, I, I think people are overwhelmed. And I think, you know, I certainly am experiencing an enormous amount of anxiety around what's happening in California. I love California. The Mediterranean Chaparral is one of the most uniquely biodiverse systems on earth. It's one of 35, you know, um, biodiversity hotspots on the planet. 40% of the plants that exist here don't exist anywhere else. 30% of the animals that live here don't live anywhere else. It's a gem and it's also hugely under attack from development and climate change. And I think that in general, most people feel overwhelmed and they feel like they have no agency. And what interests me is putting things up there uh, as a storyteller such that it gives people a little in, a little point of entry to say that, oh, I could do this, you know? And I just tell people all the time, uh, you know, it, it's like, you don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have a giant lawn. You don't need a hundred thousand dollars. You know, there's a plant tour here everyone does that's run by Theodore Payne and it's very inspiring, but it's also sometimes intimidating. And I want to tell people, I'm like, if you have steps, if you have a few steps going down to the curb, get some pots, you know, and put some of these plants in it and you can create habitat. You can create a space for life to occur. And so the most inspiring things to me are, I mean, I, I you know, I'll go back and say like Wynn Wilson's yard up in Aldadina. When I first saw that on the tour, you walk into this woodland, you walk into this oak woodland surrounded by oaks and suddenly you move through into the slightly more formal garden surrounded by a fountain and I'm like, what part of this is what you did? And what part of this was already here? And then she shows you a photograph and it was dry. Mm. It was just dead, dry land. And she created this incredibly biodiverse ecosystem because she cared to. And so, you know, when I walk into a space that's biodiverse and alive, my whole frequency shifts, mm -hmm. you know, I have a, it's, I used to walk through gardens, you know, and I'd be like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, neat, no perfect row of roses. And the, the hedge is like, you know, a trapezoid and I, it, it didn't do anything for me. But when I walk into a biodiverse site, and by the way, as you know, a lot of edible spaces are profoundly biodiverse and your practices, which inspire me so much really push that. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, synergy you can really amplify your biodiversity with a beautiful edible 
garden. Uh, I'm sorry. I feel like I, I feel like I skirted your thing, but to me, yeah, it's, okay. that, <laughs> it's any space that takes on this, that, that just says like life can occur here and it doesn't have to be a big space. You know, if I'm standing, uh, I forget where I just was. And I was like, Oh, this is all a native garden right by this bus stop. And, and you know, it's native because sh you know, shit's flying around. Like there's right. things flying around, <laughs> there's things on the ground that's that's what inspires me. I feel like I'm shouting at you. No, no, it's, it's fine. I, it really, uh, my it's funny because I have had that experience too, where uh, we haven't we had a neighbor who lived across the street from us who would be out there spraying Roundup everywhere and bug sprays oh. and all kinds of stuff. And then she she came across the street once, and I wasn't here. My husband actually told me that this happened, but she was standing in our in our front yard, and there were, you know, butterflies and bees, and everything was just like, wow, your yard is so active. And Amber <laughs> took that moment to just <laughs> seize that moment to say, yeah. well, you know, it's because we don't use bug sprays, and we don't right. use pesticides, or we don't use herbicides, and we don't spray Roundup. And we plant things that flower that attract these to, these good bugs to the garden. And the, something kind of clicked inside her head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it was a really, it was a really cool moment. And a couple of years later, they redid their landscape to include some native and drought tolerant plants, which was like, I felt semi-responsible. I love it. I <laughs> love it. Cool. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, I, I did a little movie on uh, Lisa Novick, who used to be the head of outreach for Theodore Payne. Yes. And she's now currently on sabbatical. Her husband's in France. He's a, he works at JPL. He's a, he's a rocket scientist. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I looked across, and Lisa has the most beautiful native habitat garden that she designed herself. And it's, I, I use it. It's a good place to go up and learn. But across the street, there was one. And I said, oh, what's that? She goes, oh, that's my neighbor, Jeff. He saw what I was doing and he did it. And I said, oh, I want to interview him. So we went and interviewed him. And he, I, I was, I said, uh, I said, oh, you know, so, so what made you want to do this? He goes, well, I was just trying to lower my water bill. <laughs> and, uh, and then I just started seeing all these beautiful butterflies and bees. And we got all these birds now in this oak tree over here that we didn't use to. And his joy the power of his revelation was totally infectious for me and my buddy, Will, who was my cameraman. We were like, we're going to come back. And we made a little mini movie on him because he was so excited about it. And he had fallen in love with the land. And that's the other thing, right? When you garden, when you start to see all the life that comes to your space, uh, you know, that like that changes everything for people. I, I tell everybody, I'm like, get one. Get a get a Cleveland sage, get a black sage, get a California fuchsia, get a you know, get get a white sage, and just take care of it. Do do the right thing, and you tell me what happens, and you tell me how you feel in a year. You know, that's a good. I like that challenge. I think that's a really good challenge to make. So you've started me thinking um, about plants in general. Do you have any favorite plants that you think that everyone should grow, or other important elements that every garden should have? Well, yeah, I mean, I have <laughs> that's a heavy question. <laughs> One of the things that's most magical to me, you know, uh, Ben Vogt, who wrote the book, uh, A New Garden Ethic, he came up with this phrase, gardens of defiant compassion. And what he really means by that is obviously you're, you're, you're creating a space that is ultimately not for you. 
you have to manage it. You know, we have to tend the wild. You know, we have to we have to do those things um, because the garden is actually happier with a little tending. But at the same time, when those plants start to form their own relationships, those relationships that happen below the soil and those relationships that happen above the soil, you know, that's a really magical thing. And that's something that I find deeply moving. And then all of a sudden when animals show up that had never been there before, I, I now have Western fence lizards in my yard and we didn't for five years, we didn't have one. Now we have I'm like Western fence lizards. I say that at a party and like before I can even get the sentence out of my head, everyone's asleep or has left the room. But my, I'm a big fan of our hyper local species because they are built to be here and they support the greatest amount of biodiversity. And that's true of wherever I go. I was in Massachusetts uh, for a big chunk of the summer because we go back to, to be with my wife's family. And there's a bunch of native species there that I just kind of swoon over because they're so of their place and they generate so much life. So I think of gardens in terms of low, medium, and high. Uh, and so my lower ground cover plants that I deeply love, especially in shade, are like Ribes viburnifolium, the, all the different currants that I grow here in Southern California. And there's the, the mid-sized, the chaparral currants, and the yellow current and things like that that, are, that do so beautiful in our woodlands up here in a little bit of mixed, a little bit of mixed shade. I love, love, love sage. Um, I'm such a big fan of black sage and white sage. They're both, they're, they're medicinal, you know, their, their role in indigenous culture is so profound and the amount of life that they attract is, is kind of knee weakening. And I love buckwheat, the California buckwheat. And I think there's 80 different varieties of buckwheat in California. And it's an incredibly powerful plant. And, uh, and I'm a big fan of some of our taller, I don't know if you call them trees or shrubs. Obviously the, obviously the coast oaks and the valley oaks are, are the bedrock of our biodiversity. They're one of the most, uh, Talamate did that great study or, you know, they found that the average oak had about 500 species that was dependent on it versus the ginkgo on Eagle not. Rock Boulevard, that, <laughs> right. not one. Nope. Um, and so uh, oaks, uh, buckwheats in this region, toyon to me, which is a chaparral uh, shrub that can get anywhere from 20 feet wide, to, you know, 25 feet high. Uh, it, it throws, it's a beautiful garden plant. It has a really tough leaf. It can sustain all kinds of temperatures and fires. It jumps right back and it throws a, a beautiful toxic to us, berry, bright red berry. That's where the name Christmas berry comes from. That's really important to, Anna, to birds in a time when there isn't a lot of food because it's winter time here in Los Angeles. So toyons, sages, buckwheats, they really have my heart. But again, I have 40 to 50 different varieties of plant here. And I have a garden that I run down at the Eagle Rock Presbyterian Church that also has about 45 species. So I've become a big fan of bladder pod. Bladder pod is so alien looking. I love it. Isn't it's beautiful. It? I mean, gorgeous yellow flowers and then these pods that look like beans, and, yeah. but they're weird. And, and it's, a, but it fills in spaces really nicely and it grows really well. I have to say, confession, because you, you mentioned earlier that you've killed a lot of plants. I have two, and buckwheat is one that I <laughs> always kill. Do you have a yeah. diehard like, buckwheat that does not give up? Uh, no. And <laughs> I, 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 what, so here's my thing. So I'll, here's, um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but 
the thing that I've learned, I don't have like a, like I don't have a chaparral garden per se, because I don't get the sun. I have a massive jacaranda that on the Western side, Eastern side of my property that eats all my sun until around noon. Mm. And then it swings around and it throws, and then the sun gets to cook my yard, you know, for the least friendly period of the day. And then I have two big junipers in the front of my yard that, that eat up a lot of light until sunset. And then it just, the sun throws this excoriating heat. So it's a very tricky yard to grow plants in. And so what I do is I buy in threes. And when I'm trying out a new plant, I'll try it in three different places and I'll see which one takes. And if it takes, then I do big groupings. I'm like, all right, you're happy there, go. You have the same uh, strategy as my husband, who's it's all survival of the fittest and Darwinism. And he'll bring home five different plants, see which one does well, and then come back and go get you know more of that one that survived. Yeah, Although the, I, threes, the rule of threes is a really good one anyway, because that's, that's a good design tactic is odd numbers, threes, fives, sevens. Right. You know, it's great. Never yeah, do I, the I, one the one of everything thing because then it's a mess. No, I, I I consult. That's what I do. So I, I'll go around and help people sort of get, uh, to, help them to imagine their site and imagine it as habitat. And the first thing I say is like, don't you know? Because they'll show me they're like, oh, I have a habitat garden. They'll be like, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be one Indian mallow, and then there'll be one California fuchsia, which is a plant I forgot that I plant everywhere and I love. Also, sticky monkey flower. Oh, I've killed a lot of those. <laughs> They're really easy to kill. Yeah. They kind of want to die. Um, you know, they, yeah. they, they really like north facing slopes with rocky. They're, they're tricky. But, you know, you let them grow for a few years and then they die back and you throw another one in the ground. But the thing I always tell people is don't just do one. Like, don't do it because it's not going to really give you a, a, a clear sense of if that plant is right for your property. Do three and do them in different areas and see how they do. You can't, you cannot buy one plant and stick it in the ground and, and have any sense of if it's correct for your site. Yeah, that is true. And I, it's funny because Sticky Monkey Flower uh, went through a name change. It was, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Oh, it's because I know it so well because I planted eight plants three different times and they <laughs> all died yeah. every single time. Yeah, I've killed a ton of them. Yeah. Anyway, but they're, they're beautiful when you find them out on your hike in the wilderness, you know? It's I great. know. I uh, know. So it sounds like that was that was one great tip. It is tip time. Do you have another ah, great tip, tip that you'd like to share with the garden um, audience? Yeah, groupings. So that's my one. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'll do a grouping of tips, and you can pick and choose. <laughs> um, dense groupings, especially of certain plants, your eucharis and things like that. Don't just stick one in the ground. You're not gonna get the impact of it that you want. A lot of these plants they like to be together. Do a bunch of them. Just go big. You know, one of the things I tell people to have is like, don't be afraid to kill things. You know, (laughs) on one hand, I I have this kind of like completely divergent philosophy, which is on one hand, this is sacred stuff you're dealing with. You are creating a space for life to occur. And that's a very beautiful, powerful thing to be a part of. So treat them like your baby, but don't worry if they die because they're not your baby. And uh, so be, be bold, you know, really be bold. And another thing I tell people is they're always inevitably going like, oh my God, it's overwhelming. And I'm like, start small, mm-hmm. pick one spot and make that spot your project. Just pick a, whatever you got, you know, pick a little area and study it, get to know your soil, learn about the soil. How, how fast does it, does it drain? How much sun does that spot become a student of that spot? Because the more intimacy you have 
with the, the land, a little piece of land, the more compassion and understanding you'll have for everything that's out there. It ripples outward, but it starts right at your feet. So start small and, and just try that one little thing. Maybe pick three plants that someone tells you might go well together. You know, there's so many people online that can help you. There's so many people in... Uh, and I, I don't use Facebook anymore. I do have a group there, which I've sort of abandoned. I do most of my work off of Instagram. I know, I know. You're so good at this stuff. Ah, I have um, help. I have help. Oh, I need it. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that, so start small, mm-hmm. big groupings, be great, be brave, love them, but don't worry if they die. And all of those, those things together will give you an intimacy with your site that is everything everything because from that you just get more confidence and more understanding and you start to speak plant awesome those are all great tips and together it is i think it's important to have them all together not just one mimulus arantiacus by the way i remembered yes Yes. sticky monkey flower but but it has recently changed latin names i i refuse to learn the new name i'm like no 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 it's mimulus arantiacus that's just what yeah they did they did that with uh, with fuchsia as well, right? Because it was it used to be called zauchinaria, zauchinaria. Now it's now it's epilobium. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, once DNA testing became more affordable, that's changed everything in the plant kingdom. Because yeah. now they can figure out exactly which family it really belongs to based on DNA evidence, not just the shape and size and the way it produces and all of that. It's kind of cool. Anyway, I digress. Well, thank you so much for that. Those, those tips are great. And I wanted to mention, uh, we may have mentioned this before, but along with your theory, you know, your, your suggestion of planting big, there is a recommended size of space that you want to have for pollinators. It's at least a swath of the same thing that's three by three feet ish Mm -hmm. or, you know, bigger. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite size you like to make things or anything like that? You mean in terms of a planted area? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, so funny. I I just, just did a fairly big hillside in Glassell Park. And I kind of just picked every little area. I was just like, yeah, go for it. You know, a perfect area would be five by 10 for right. me. Like a five by 10, you could, be that, you could crush it in a five by 10 area. But if you have like a three by seven, you can still do some tall plants towards the back. You know, a few of them. If I, I have friends right now or landscapers are like, no, you can't. I have, I, I'm going to say something really quick. I overplant. You know, oh, you're I'm, one of those. I'm an okay. overplanter. I crowd. Uh, I crowd. I let them sort it out, and, t- and then they tell me that that was not a good idea. <laughs> right, so, and I yeah. tend to do the opposite because native plants. That's the other question I had for you. I have so many clients with really tiny spaces, and so they don't mm-hmm. have room for the toyons and the sure. and the giant sages. You know, the white sage gets five feet across. Giant. For that. So, do yeah. do you have any favorite smaller plants? I'm always looking for like upright and narrow <laughs> they don't really exist though <laughs> upright you know upright and narrow with the natives is really tricky um unless you're going to do like junkuses and things like that right um and you know so i love i i know some people don't and there's a there's a ton of varieties of it our our native the alum root the euchre alum root is a terrific shade part i actually find it doesn't love total shade but it, it it's a beautiful shade plant that you can put together in really dense groupings. It has a nice compact form when it's not 
flowering and when it's flowering it sends up those those long spires with all those little bells on it and you could do big drifts of them they go from pink to white to this kind of deep deep fuchsia they're beautiful i love um the penstemons and i've had pretty good luck with the local um Spectabilis, which gets quite tall. Yeah. Um, but it's nice in the background because it kind of throws up over and you could do in the foreground. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the Ariagonum, the buckwheat cultivars like the crocatum and the Shasta sulfur and the red um, are really beautiful and they get nice and dense and they hold their form. And then they do this beautiful job of, you know, flowering in the spring. And then those flowers tend to go to uh, rust by, by midsummer and but the whole time they're providing an, an, an enormous amount they, they, they pack a lot of punch in terms of biodiversity for pollinators and so they're nice low forming I like those a lot I like the I love buckwheat man I love buckwheat I love the 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 black sage cultivar that's a ground cover I think that's a really you know beautiful plant and then there's all the beautiful wildflower mixes that uh, can really anchor down a space when I plant a site I'll put the big plants in my key species and then I'll just cover it with wildflowers because it really, they do a beautiful job, especially poppies. They can be actually aggressive. Yeah. Um, poppies are in, pretty invasive here, but yeah, I plant them once and 14 years later, they're still growing. That's right. <laughs> exactly. yeah, you gotta, they'll, yeah. they'll take out your, your little babies if you're not careful, but yeah. they do a so, beautiful job of keeping nasturtium at bay. Yeah, and I have that as well. But the so you just scatter native seeds in between native wildflower seeds in between oh, your, anchor ban your perennial plantings. I do, yeah, and I just let them. I let them sort it out. I'll do tansy leaf phacelia in my in my sunnier spots with a nice wildflower mix, like you know. And I do. Uh, I'll do a lot of clarkia and china house, and you know the nemophilia mixes, five spot, and all those in the shade areas, and I let them kind of create their own little ecosystem because then their root systems, you know, yeah, poppies can be a pain in the butt, but the other ones have a very shallow root system and they don't get in the way of your, of your bigger um, perennials. Well, I, we went on a bit of a tangent there, but sorry, <laughs> no worries. It's my fault. I kept asking questions, but thank I, you I so didn't, much. I didn't, I didn't inundate you with all the data that I had. I was like, yeah, we'll skip the data. No, no, it's fine. Uh, we have some pretty learned listeners, so I think they'll be able to run with this. Good. I, I will post all of these uh, great uh, species that you mentioned during our talk in the blog post that goes along with this. But thank you so much for sharing your expert thank tips you. and for thank being a you. guest this on the Gardener is... Tip of the Week podcast. I'm such a fan. I'm such a fan. Oh, so thanks. It's, it's, you know, it's the coolest thing. So I'm, I'm truly honored Absolutely. <laughs> well, how do people find you? Uh, so Instagram, Wild Yards Project, one word, is uh, my sort of interacting zone of choice. And, uh, and then my website is wildyardsproject.com. Cool. And that's right. it. Now, you can, you can join the Facebook thing. I have a couple other admin people who work on it. I have had a little issue with Facebook, as I think many people have. And I've taken a break from it. But um, it is there, and I do check in and say hi to people and stuff like that. Great. 
All right, yeah. Garden Nerds, you'll find links to the Wild Yards Project website on gardennerd.com this week. We'll also post their social media links for great tips to increase the wild spaces surrounding you. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Ensure your support for this podcast and the other free stuff we do at Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!